if you're sitting in an organization, you're sitting very high above what actually happens at the sales level, spend some time actually going down and understanding what the sellers have to do because it's more complex. And you have to stay really, really disciplined and you have to put the effort in. So how do they do that is by adding value, by selling solutions and outcomes and creating a level of credibility to where you're, you're advising. You're really a highly paid consultant, if you will. And if you can establish credibility and you have knowledge about the space, then you're going to probably have the ability to get more access and have more conversations. So that's our baseline. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. This week, I'm joined by Phenom's GM VP of Sales, Jeremy Bono. Jeremy has led sales and go-to-market teams at ServiceNow, SAP, amongst others, before joining Phenom. Jeremy, pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the time. You've got a glittered CV, I'd say, with some of the companies on there. Um, would For anyone at home that hasn't come across you before, or you've not met, could you give them a bit more context on your story and your background? Yeah, for sure. You know, outside of working since I was 15 years old, I worked in retail and grocery. I would say my first real start was in business was in search. So I was actually a, a recruiter. I guess the word headhunter might not be a might be a dirty word these days. Who knows how you take that? But I was a recruiter. I was in search for three years. I worked for a search firm, specifically focusing in around technology, chip design, and chip designers. The the software that was used for chip designers to design those chips and build those chips. And I learned a ton. It was a really good kind of foray into the business world because you were picking up the phone and smiling and dialing. You had to have good quality phone scripts. You learned about the recruiting process, which is very similar to the sales process. You went out, you know, did your research, you identified talent, you qualified them, you recruited them, and ultimately helped close them to join the company that you were representing. So I spent a lot of time there and I really attribute a lot of the success I had and the discipline that I've created in and around that first job. After that, I transitioned into actually corporate recruiting and led corporate recruiting teams. So I kind of took the same philosophy that search had and recruiting had and brought that philosophy inside an organization. And I worked at a company called Cabletron back in the day and built some teams, led some teams from a recruiting perspective, implemented a lot of those philosophies and a lot of that process and um, had a lot of success. From there, I actually made it a career transition, which wasn't necessarily easy to do. Two things happened. One, I met my wife and uh, we've been now together for over 20 years. That was 22, 23 years ago. So that was a really big thing that happened. And two, I made a career transition at the same time. I moved into software. And the way I was able to move from, I would say, line HR and recruiting into software was I was the first US customer of a pioneer in the SaaS space for recruiting software. At the time, it was called RecruitSoft, became Taleo and then got bought by Oracle later on. I implemented it to drive efficiencies and optimizations to, and to create really some innovative ways to match candidates to jobs to help the company grow. 
that I was representing from a recruiting perspective and got introduced to the founders and principals of that company, ended up with a 10-year career there. And that's where I grew up in software. I started in project management. I moved into solution consulting. I moved into sales. I did mid-market sales. I did enterprise sales. I did the strategic account management. I did sales leadership. And over that 10-year period of time, I kind of got to see how a really good quality SaaS company, technology company kind of operated in the early days of SaaS and worked with phenomenal leaders. I think of a few, Mike Gregoire and Igo Vang and Louis Tetu and Susan Van Clank and a guy by the name of Jeff Carr that actually recruited me out of solution consulting and got me into sales because I was actually considering a career in solution consulting. And I had to make at that point a, a decision on which way I'd go. And he convinced me that I would do very well in sales and really appreciative of all those folks. There are other names from that period of time, but that was a big period of time for me over that 10 years. 10 years passed there. The industry started changing a bit. You had big companies like Oracle and SAP wanting to get into the cloud game. They're out there making all sorts of acquisitions, which fueled a ton of growth. So I ended up joining SAP. SAP bought a company called Success Factors. I knew a lot of folks that joined the organization. One of the names was Sue Van Klink. She actually internally recruited me at Taleo and then recruited me externally to SAP. And I got a chance to really lead teams and kind of cut my teeth on first line sales leadership at SAP. Again, great group of people. And of course, observing some pretty cool leaders like Bill McDermott, Lars Dalgrad, who founded Success Factors and got a chance really to observe how they operated and how they led and motivated teams and how they grew teams. That was an awesome experience that I had. And I learned a lot about first line leadership during that period of time. From there, if you follow my LinkedIn kind of profile, I, I'll talk about service now because I think that was the next major growth period for me personally. I was fortunate enough to get recruited in at a really cool time in ServiceNow's history. It was back in 2016. They were looking at kind of building their plan to go to $4 billion by 2020. And to do that, they started to build these business units. I was recruited to build one of those business units. And during that period of time, uh, I got into the ground floor. I was the first go-to-market person that they hired. And I was responsible for hiring and for building the strategy and for growing the organization. And we grew from $8 million to $220 million over the four years that I was there. And really attribute that to the strategy that ServiceNow had. And for the first time in my career, I got to see that type of growth being the first one in. It was sort of like a startup inside of a very large funded organization. I had a mentor and a boss that empowered me and had high standards. His name was Craig Pratt. But also, I learned just a hell of a lot from in terms of how to scale and grow the organization. So at the end of that period of time, like I say, we were about 220 million, 100 people across the globe. We experienced major growth from about 150 customers, to 1,200 customers. We were able to retain those customers. ServiceNow did such a great job with their platform that we had customers coming to us, asking to speak and do references and things like that. And if you sold software, been in the software world, that doesn't always happen. So again, just a great organization and awesome experience. And then from there, I left and kind of uh, did my toes in startup world again and experienced the transition and helping a company kind of find their product market fit and transition from a kind of a point solution to a platform. And then I ended up here where I am now today at, at Venom, which is interesting because I started in recruiting, as I mentioned, and now I'm back 
with a company that has a whole platform that started in recruiting and talent acquisition with candidates and things like that. And now we have a whole platform for, for driving a full-on experience across the organization. And here I am today, leading teams, driving revenue, helping this company kind of scale and grow in the phase that we're at just briefly is we're now in a phase where we're trying to bring people together, create some level of scale and predictability so we can maybe go IPO at some point in the future and or scale and grow the company to a lot larger where we are today. Amazing. And so where I want to begin is you joined Phenom, was it 18 months ago? Yeah, roughly. So when you first joined, could you just give a kind of a before and now in terms of the makeup of the team that, that was reporting into you from what it looked like when you first joined to what it's looking like now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's about 18 months ago. If you know, we also had a, another impact in the market we've been all dealing with during this period of time. So I think when I joined, it was just before some of those market conditions changed. And I was asked to lead some of our enterprise in, in vertical uh, verticals. So net net getting my getting my feet back in the water of net new selling, acquiring net new logos. And then the other reason that I joined was to help the company kind of scale and grow and mature in terms of our processes and things like that. So I've got a bunch of side projects that, that I'm responsible for. I wouldn't say a lot has changed. I mean, the market conditions certainly have impacted every company in the space. And if you look just outside of Phenom for a little bit, I think in general, a lot of companies, the way they scale is just by throwing bodies at things. And that doesn't always work. In fact, it only works when you have really good understanding of how you scale and grow, and then you can apply the body to it. So understand the, the unit economics and understanding the really important things of like, if I apply a human being to something, then I am going to get a yield out of it. So I think this company has done a really good job at making sure that we balance the need to hire with the balance to make sure that we create predictable and scalable processes that allow us to grow. So that's where we're spending our time right now outside of just kind of growing the company. And in our space, we're the leader in our space. We've had a ton of innovation uh, over the period of time. So you can imagine when you have a lot of innovation, a lot of growth quick, you have existing employees, you have new employees, you have new process and new ways that you need to operate, new ways that you need to enable. So all of those things are all happening once. If you've seen anything for me, what gets me out of bed is growth. It's the challenge of growth. It's the fun of growth. And when you're able to do it, it's, there's a high, there's a huge reward, not just monetarily, just from a standpoint of seeing the success and working with people and as a team doing things together to actually grow the organization, scale the organization. So that's where we're at right now. I completely agree. And so let's dig into that a little bit more and the point around growth. So in the time that you have been there now, what have been some of those moments, you know, perhaps a few different successes that you've had over the past 18 months where I guess it's the moments that put a smile on your face. It's like, this is why I do the job because you're seeing something that you went and implemented really working. Yeah, I've always been the type to not want to sell software. I want to sell an outcome. That's what excites me. So you know, figuring out what that outcome needs to be for that individual customer is really critical. So I think what we've really focused on here is good, solid discipline. This company already had pretty good sales discipline, but applying another lens to it and another layer to it around value selling and double, kind of doubling down on really good discovery and focusing on how we can advise the customer, listen to the customer based upon their problems and ultimately how it impacts the business. So we've spent a lot of time on doing really good discovery taking that 
kind of problem solution value in bu- building business cases with our constituents, with our champions, and helping them get projects approved when budgets are really, really tight and being questioned. They might have the budget, but it has to go through a whole other layer of getting it released. In order to do that, you need to be really, really effective at your value thesis and why you're doing this for the organization. Because any good leader isn't just going to buy software to buy software to make their lives either. It's got to make an impact to the business. So a lot of the time that we've been spending as an organization has been, how do we create the skills or improve the skills around business value outcomes for our buyers? And oftentimes the buyers don't know how to do this, right? They don't spend all day, every day pitching projects and buying software. So we're really advisors to help them do that. And to do that, you really have to go deep. You have to build trust. You have to create credibility. You have to advise. You have to understand the space. So those are a lot of the things that we're doing from a sales execution perspective. The other thing that's interesting is because of the market condition, the number of influencers and constituents involved in the process has just multiplied. And you have to make sure that you're not just staying single-threaded. So it's a team sport. It's always been a team sport. Nobody wins alone. Leveraging the company and your team to build the relationship with the customer is really, really critical. And then the way that customers want to engage has kind of followed suit on how they buy consumer technology. They may not want to talk to you. So you have to think about in the age of AI and automation, how you interact and engage with your buyers, how they actually want to collect and learn. Nurture is going to be all automated in the future. It's already started. So leveraging technology, we have some projects going on in our organization and how we actually can do automated discovery. And then an automated demo based upon that. Because a lot of times you're talking as a sales team to people that maybe don't have budget or the timing's off from a standpoint of buying, but they want to learn about your organization. And sometimes they don't want to talk to you. They want to engage in a way that they engage buying a pair of AirPods or another consumer product. So many different ways that I feel like I could take that, but I'm going to focus on the first one. You talked about like really trying to hammer out the discovery process there. Could you perhaps give to those listening like what would your tips be to them for really like one why is a good discovery process valuable and two tips for really nailing that yeah i would say forget about your product and be super curious those are two pieces of advice that i can give all of us probably if we've been in sales long enough have probably subscribed to some sort of methodology to help you get better at your craft value selling is one i we worked with a number of players, but I really like a company called Visualize. There's a founder and CEO, Scott Angelis. We use them at ServiceNow. And what they were really, really good at is simplifying that down. And if you think about it, here I call it the power five. I talk about the problem. And as a salesperson, you're trying to dig and discover what the problems are and why they are. And you keep you don't snorkel, you're actually scuba diving down into why it's important. And if you stick with the problem and have a real good clarity around the problem, then you can move on to the next phase of the process. And by the way, on the problem, it's really important you get down to how it's impacting the business. So somebody might want to accomplish something, but it may not have a business yield to it. So the, the project will probably never get approved, especially in times like this. So if you can figure out what that problem is, 
and or problems are and make the connection to how it's impacting the business. Is it impacting the customer? Is it impacting their ability to grow? Is it impacting their ability to drive more revenue? What is it impacting? You're going to have a high level of success at selling whatever you're selling. So the next one is really about the solution. And immediately with my team, even myself, sometimes when I get into it, I want to talk about our product and our solution. It's about how they're thinking about solving the problems that you just spent time learning about before you even talk about your product. So what have they tried before? How are they thinking about solving it? Why are they thinking about solving it that way? What do they think is going to be the outcome as a result? And then ultimately, once you understand their psychology around how they're going to solve the problem, you can start asking questions about how that you might be able to help them solve the problem with your product or your service or your offering. And then then you dig into, once you nail that, I would say you dig into more around the value. So again, any executive needs to provide a return or justification, a business justification of why they're doing something. It has to benefit the greater organization. It has to drive value. There has to be a yield. So how are they thinking about that is a conversation. And what type of yield and outcome do they expect do they need to report on? And really spending some time aligning with the value thesis is really, really critical. And then you get into the other two aspects of like, all right, well, who else needs to get involved? So this is around the power base in the organization or all the people that can either say no, yes, or either or stall your what you're trying to do or what they're trying to do, really what they're trying to do, and you're helping them through it. And as I mentioned earlier, the number of constituents has only increased over the course of the last few years. And it's making the complex sale complex, more complex. So Sitting down and understanding all of that is really critical. And whether they're going to be a supporter or whether they're not going to be a supporter or whether they have a different idea for a different solution, it's almost a conversation in itself. And if you're really good at all this and really efficient at all this, you can get to the last step, which is really, okay, well, we've had a good conversation. Can we develop a plan? Did you actually do your job? Can you get to the next step? Often the next step, in many cases, might be, all right, show me how you can solve the problem. It's a demo, but it's in the concept of problem, solution, value. So you're delivering that back. Before that, you're confirming a lot along the way. So you have a really good sense. So that's the discovery. Like That's kind of the philosophy that I was taught and that's, that I've learned. And that's a, there's probably a lot more to it. But being really curious and digging into it and making sure you have a really good understanding before you move on on all of these aspects are really critical. That'll help you drive a really good quality cycle. Perfect. And you alluded to it there, which was the second bit that I wanted to dig into, particularly when you are, when you say, you know, being curious around it. And it's around those, um, the number of influencers that are included. And so I guess to add a bit of context to what you were mentioning, I think when we ran our analysis of about 37 billion of pipeline recently, it was 10 influencers typically are involved in the sales process. And the amount of people that I tell that to, they're just like, really? It's surprising to people. It's like, is it really that many? Because oftentimes, particularly when we look at the number of influencers that sales that sellers are typically engaging, it's more around the three, maybe to six number. And so there's a real disparity there. And what so often then comes up, which is what I'd love to hear your point of view on, is how are you recommending that your teams go about multi-threading deals as opposed to single-threading them. So it's from the understanding who are the influencers through to how do you actually get them engaged and on board? Yeah, well, it certainly isn't easy. That's one of the things I think. If you're sitting in an organization, you're sitting very high above what actually happens at the sales level. 
spend some time actually going down and understanding what the sellers have to do because it's more complex. And you have to stay really, really disciplined and you have to put the effort in. So how do they do that is by adding value, by selling solutions and outcomes and creating a level of credibility to where you're, you're advising. You're really a highly paid consultant, if you will. And if you can establish credibility and you have knowledge about the space, then you're going to probably have the ability to get more access and have more conversation. So that's that baseline. Like, Be a student of your craft, a student of the business, a student of the customer, their customers. Really get a good sense for who you're talking to and what the challenge is. So you're actually teaching them something uh, when you come to the table. If you do that, then you're going to naturally, their people are going to want to talk to you. They're going to want to hear what you have to say. Now, the tactical part of multi-threading is really understanding the who first. Like you mentioned 10, that's spot on. In some cases, it's more than 10, depending upon the complexity of the company or things like that. So understanding the who is the first step to the process. And then it's, you never go into a sales conversation by yourself these days. We're all surrounded by great resources. So the really, really good sellers are how they're trying to figure out how do they leverage everybody and align everybody in an account and being okay with it. So it's a conversation, whether it's a deal review or part of the weekly calls or just stand-ups, whatever you're trying to do, you're all in sync with what's happening. And the actual seller is, is coordinating and quarterbacking that whole process. So use other people as part of the process. And don't be fooled. If somebody's not willing to give you access, why? Is that because you haven't created credibility? Is that because they want to go about it on their own? We have all this knowledge and data if you stay there, you're likely going to be stalled or you'll lose your deal. And that's what we see happen with the data that we look at every single day. We often try to get to the executive and the ultimate power person, decision maker. Because I can tell you, I just did three or four of them the last few weeks. And our teams, both at the champion level and at the seller level, thought everything was great. We did an executive review and they're concerned about capacity. They're concerned about the priority of the project. They're concerned about the cost of the project. They don't really fully understand why they're doing the project. So up and down the organization, you have to create clarity as to the business value and justification, understand the questions that they have, and then leverage people in the organization to help you collect that data, build the relationships and things like that. The one bit that I want to dig into perhaps a little bit more there, when you say, assumedly, to the example that you've just given with the executives, assumedly, you've got kind of the relationship there. So what does that look like in reality when you're actually doing it? Is that a meeting that you're having that you're taking your rep into and it's a you know quite an open conversation? Is that something that you're kind of doing on the side? I'm just very curious because that's, as you say, so often it's those high-level executives that you really want to get on board because they're ultimately going to be the real gatekeepers at the end of it. They go, you know, we don't have the budget for this. We don't have capacity for it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a test to see how serious they are about doing something. So if you have an executive sponsor on in a particular customer, getting access to them is asking. And here's why you're asking. And, and ultimately, if you have a really good champion, they're willing to do that for you. And you can articulate why it's important because you, you go through all these processes, you see all these cycles. It's really, really critical. So if they're agreeing to the meeting, that's probably a really good sign. If they're not agreeing to the meeting, you want to know why is because they don't they have other priorities they don't care about this project and that's pretty telling in the sales cycle but usually if you have a qualified deal and you're in process they do want to align and hear from another executive it could be that they attended an early presentation and we're going back and tapping them and wanting to align with them it could be that they want to hear more about our strategy 
as a company or where we're investing. So they're curious. And from our side, obviously, we're interested in aligning on and confirming a lot of the things we've heard along the process between the two teams. They're managing a team. We're managing a team from a, I'm managing a team from a sales perspective. So those tend to be one-on-ones. I find that one-on-ones are really, really the best because you have no other distractions. People tend to be a little bit more open and more direct, and they're not as careful with what they need to say or how they say it if, because there's nobody else in the room. And they want to talk to another decision maker. So it's just as much on me to come prepared as my sellers to those conversations. And the way I start those conversations is really around confirming the outcomes. Here's what we heard through the process. This is what your team tells me in terms of what, we're, what they're trying to accomplish and why they're trying to accomplish it. We believe that these are the problems and these are the business issues and ultimately these are the outcomes. Is that correct? Do I have that correct? If not, please, please help me understand. And that's the start of the conversation oftentimes. And then from there, it goes into, all right, here in my understanding in terms of what's important to you in terms of go live dates or launch dates and when you want to actually see those outcomes, you confirm a lot of that stuff and where we are in, in the process. And then hopefully offering up some advice if they have questions or concerns or, hey, what do you think about this? You're getting them to maybe think about things maybe a little bit differently, offering a different perspective and then leaving the door open to continue the conversation. Whether that happens right away or that happens down the line after they go live, they always have an executive that they can help navigate inside your own organization or help to solve a problem or answer a question. Well, I love that. And what was coming up for me was how that so nicely aligns with this point you were making earlier around you are selling an outcome and not the solution, right? And actually got that trust and credibility there where it's how can we work together rather than how can you buy our software, right? Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to force a square peg into a round hole or get on a call and pressure an executive into signing a deal. And if you do all the right things, it will happen naturally. And that's what ultimately matters. You want to have the customer's best interest. Yeah, we're all trying to we work on linearity monthly or quarterly or whatever our goals are, but it's not about us. It's about the customer. And the better we get at thinking through the customer lens, the more success we're going to have meeting our numbers and objectives and our commitments to our organization. Yeah, perfect. It's something that I was kind of thinking about before coming into this. And and you really kind of alluded to it when you were talking around your remit coming in around scaling and growth. And it's such an, it's a very common goal, right? For every sales team, given the state of the the, the market in, in software sales right now, obviously it depends on every single business, but what is your approach around Really, I don't want to say selling in economic downturn because I think from what we're seeing, it actually, it's that we've kind of hit the bottom of that, and actually we're starting to come out of it from the analysis that we've done. However, it's I think what's been very common in the folks that I've spoken to, there's very much this change in perspective of okay, it's not about growth or costs anymore. We're not just going to invest willy nilly into hiring more sellers. Instead, it's starting to look at how can we be more efficient, how can we do this more sustainably and more predictably. So how do you approach that with your teams? Yeah, good question. I guess I'd start at a macro level. Like if you don't have your house in order as it relates to the rest of the organization, then your revenue engine is going to suffer. So what I mean by that is, do you have a good product? Is it reliable? Do you have, as a result, do you have customers that are happy with it? They're receiving the outcomes and the value that you state. Do you implement well? Do you support well? you have a good relationship with a customer. Like it sounds really basic, but it's super important because 
if you don't, then it creates barriers and brand problems, barriers from a sales process or brand problems in the market, both of which you have to overcome from a sales perspective. And they happen with software and technology. So if you have an issue, as long as you have a plan, a timeline, and the result, people can understand those things. So it's in a downturn, hopefully your house is in order so you're not dealing with those things because to your point, we've all sold through downturns. And if you have a solution that's going to do more, right, or less, it's going to automate things, it's going to drive value, it's going to align with what they're trying to do from an organizational perspective, then they're always going to invest in those things. So back to, from a sales perspective, it's, it sounds like a broken record, but you got to understand it. So if you value selling, then you can typically get through and be successful in a downturn because if you're either adding value and it's creating some sort of yield for the organization, you're solving a business issue or you're not. And if you're not, then you're going to be left on the sideline and you may get lucky every once in a while. You either got to figure that out and figure out what your value prop is to, to an organization and ultimately validate that value throughout the whole cycle of the relationship with the customer or you already have it in place and you're experiencing some level of success. So those are some things that at a macro level and at a sales execution level that are really, really critical. And those are hard conversations sometimes because you don't never want to use any of that as an excuse from a sales perspective, but at the leadership level, you do want to have real conversations grounded in the truth and get to the root cause of what's preventing some of the things that are preventing you maybe from scaling and growing efficiently. And on that note, it's something that I did want to ask and because it's really around that point of scalability. It's something that we were looking at in our analysis was around quota attainment. And it comes up a lot with CRS and VP of sales that I talk to because it's this classic 80-20 situation where we've got 20% of our sellers at the top and 80% at the bottom that aren't necessarily consistently hitting their quota. Right. Yeah. And to your point, it's not necessarily around just we're just going to keep chopping off the bottom and continue adding more in the top, hoping that this is going to get better. So from that point of view of scaling and growth, you obviously want to create, and don't want to take words out of your mouth, but you want to create that scalable foundation, right? So how are you approaching that within Phenom around growth retainment? And how are you, I guess, not only investing more in your top performers, but also how are you working with your, I don't want to say lower performers, but you, you know, the middle of the pack to help get them onto the next level? Yeah, and to your point, it's a lot easier when you have a smaller team that's engaged and there's a dynamic there with smaller teams that can create a big, pretty big outcome. When you start to scale and grow, I had mentioned earlier in our conversation around just adding humans to the equation. It really works unless you have a really deep understanding of why it will work. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think about like that quota attainment is I look at the profile, like we use Octus. It's an, it's an assessment tool. It's one of the things that it does. But it actually looks at the top performers of the organization. And then we go to an assessment. And when we interview people, we measure against our top performers and then hire against that the top performer characteristics. And also, it's really a cool assessment because it helps you interview appropriately and maybe shows you based upon the results where you should dig in. So net-net, have conviction and clarity around your hiring profile. Have a good, solid process and be disciplined around it. And don't deviate from it. it. You might, in some cases, it's okay to experiment and you don't ever lose if you're learning. But try to 
you know, once you have a process, stick with the process. And where we start to go astray as leaders or organizations is when we, we lose discipline. We lose discipline in the sales process. We lose discipline in the hiring process. We lose discipline in our go-to-market process. It's hard. But those that are disciplined and operate that way have the most success. So that's the first thing. And then I would say we don't really, in many cases, help the sellers. So you have to create a culture of it's okay to fail. And it, you know, as mentioned earlier, I, one of my strong beliefs is that you never lose if you learn. And if you're learning and you're actively applying those learnings to the next opportunity, then you're going to get better. So create a culture that where you're not creating, you're cracking the whip all the time. Sometimes you need to do, but create a culture. Hey, it's okay to fail. Learn from it. Let's move on, apply from it, and then try to scale it. So that's the other part around leveraging effectively an enablement team that's aligned to your go-to-market strategy, that's aligned to your hiring strategy, and, and really can create a framework and then really good content based upon where each of the sellers are at. So meeting the seller where they're at. In many cases, they just need a playbook for creating pipeline. In other cases, they need a playbook for executing well against a sales process, right? Or proper discovery, whatever those, those areas are. So creating that. And then I think the first line leaders are really critical roles in really any organization, in particular in sales and the sales organization, because they have to manage, but their job is a coach. So, and they need to be adding value, not just reporting up. They need to be adding value down to the individual seller and understanding the skills and where they're really strong and maybe where they're a little weaker, where you can help fill in. It might be different for each one of your performers. So if you can figure that out, I think you can have a lot more success at trying to rounding out that curve where you have the haves and the have-nots, if you will. I would love to ask, if you're happy to share, what are the characteristics of your top performers that you've kind of taken forwards into hiring? Yeah. Well, I mean, naturally, there's somebody that has experienced some level of success before. So if you're looking for somebody a little bit more seasoned, they've had some success. And the way they've had success is through some of their, the way they operate, the way, how disciplined they are. So their principles for applying a lot of what we talked about with value selling through the process, by nature, they're highly curious. I would say they're responsible. I would say there's a level of intensity. All of those three, by the way, are part of our core values at Phenom. So you can apply those core values into the sales process. Intensity, not in a, in a bad way, just intensity from a standpoint of when I show up, I'm showing up with my all. So there has to be a will there. And then the skills, the other part. So I think in our space, the knowledge around the industry and the product are really critical because you might find yourself in a conversation like this one-on-one where you can't rely on somebody that supports you, whether you're a solution consultant or somebody that's helping you with, with a level of expertise or somebody that's strategy or transformation. Maybe they're asking you business questions. You really have to have a good, solid understanding and interest to be able to coach, advise, and know the product. So you can apply it in that moment, in real time, situationally. And then from there, I would say back to the will, it's, I want to win. I want people on my team that wants to win. I want people on my team that want to be the best. I want people on my team that really take it seriously, that this is a craft and this is about developing their craft. Uh, I want people on my team that operate like a team that really, they don't, they leave their ego aside and they look at the customer and the company first and what they can apply to help really solve problems and drive success. Those are some of the things that I think about when I hire people and when I, the people that I want to work with. 
I love that, and and also obviously love that it aligns with the cultural values of the company as well, and and seeing that filter down not just from the folks in the C-suite, but all the way down into the frontline sellers. And I'd imagine that that has a profound effect when you're selling to people as well, because that's the same kind of cultural values value set that everyone is pulling from. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you get it wrong, or nobody's perfect. Admit it, learn, move on, apply those learnings, and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, final, final question. What is one book that you would recommend to other revenue leaders? Yeah, I'll give you a book, but I kind of look at this question maybe as how I might develop myself. It's on us individually to take ownership of our own development. Now, we need help along the way. We need mentors. We need advice. We need perspective. But oftentimes people show up and what are you going to do for me? Now, what are you going to do for yourself? Because ultimately, we own our own development, no matter what level in the organization. So I'll talk a little bit about how I do that myself, but I'll give you the book first. And I mentioned Craig Pratt, who is my direct uh, leader and, and also a really good friend and mentor at ServiceNow. He, he gave me a bunch of good books, but one of them is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. So just a basis of just all of us have ego naturally. It's the human nature. So some of us have more than others, but how do you set that aside? And it's not about me. It's about us. It's about the organization. And I think that that was a really short read, good book that just in the, obviously the name of the book says a lot of what's in the book, but I'll leave it with you and the listeners to maybe pick up the book and learn a little bit more about it. I'm a big fan of David Novak. He was the chairman and CEO of Young Brands. When he retired from Young Brands, he went out and built his podcast where he interviews some phenomenal world-class leaders. You name it, that person's been on his podcast. He's a big fan of leadership. He's a big fan of recognition. And he kind of has developed the next part of his life and his career to helping other leaders develop themselves. So I'm a big fan of what he does. He talks about taking people with you and to get big things done. And you got to have people when nobody does things on their own. I can tell you, I had a world-class team at ServiceNow. We had world-class teams at Success Factors. We have a world-class team here. You don't do anything on your own and you want to be a part of that because it's bigger than yourself, right? And then I belong to a community called Pavilion. It used to be called the Revenue Collective. Two of my um, colleagues at ServiceNow, when I left ServiceNow, actually introduced me to them. And one of the reasons why I joined is because I had traveled so much around the world in, in my roles. And, and I live in New England and found myself not really knowing a lot of network and other revenue leaders in the New England area. So that was one of the main reasons I joined is to start to build my network here locally because I've been traveling all over the world. With that, now pavilion membership, I've taken their revenue ops schooling, which is a 10-week course and ultimately a certificate. It's, it's obviously homework, but they bring in every week a new speaker and you learn a ton about that. I just finished the CRO school over there. I learned a lot from that. So it's that concept of never stop learning and be super curious and how do you better yourself every single day. That's the framework that I've used. I also have a plan. Like My goal someday is to become a CRO of an organization. When that time comes, it will be when it comes. Up until that point, if I'm serious about it, I've got to become quote-unquote CRO ready. And in order to do that, I've got to up my game. So for me, the areas that I'm working on is around executive influence, data, really understanding the unit economics of your operation of your organization, more on the financial side so I can have good conversations across the executive team. These are all things that I am working on personally to get me to that next level. So many fantastic recommendations. I would second uh, Ego is the Enemy. That also great, great book. 
and shout out to the folks at Pavilion as well. I myself have done a, f- a few of their courses as well. And it goes a long way to, I think, starting to um, put more practical tips on the kind of topics that we talk about on this show into practice. So do check them out. And I'll actually, uh, I'll make sure that we've got links to all of those Great. down in the show notes below. Spectacular. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Um, for anyone listening, if they've got any questions for you or they perhaps want to connect, where can they find you? Thank you, Lee. Find me on LinkedIn. I love to connect and talk with folks. I learn a lot from those conversations. I learned a lot from this conversation, Lee. So I appreciate you and the time you've given me today. I hope it was useful to the folks that are listening. Thank you so much. And uh, well, I learned a huge amount from it anyway. So thank you so much again, Jeremy. And to everyone that's listened this week, we shall catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.